0: Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Please do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks uh, can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Registration is now open for our next event, the Planet Microcap Showcase, which is taking place in Las Vegas at the Horseshoe Hotel and Casino, formerly Bally's, on April 25-27, 2023. Expect three days of networking, company presentations, one-on-one meetings, in short, a lot of fun, and, and getting work done. Uh, If you follow our community and especially invest in microcap stocks, you're not going to want to miss this. Expect more announcements on speakers who may be there to pitch a few names, as well as the presenting company list. To register and attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now for today's show, I invited on Eden Rahim, Portfolio Manager for the NextEdge Biotech and Life Sciences Opportunities Fund. It's been a bloodbath for biotech in the last two years. According to the S&P Biotechnology Select Industry Index, the sector has been down approximately 45 to 50% during that time. At the same time, in 2023, also according to the S&P Biotechnology Select Industry Index, the sector is up about 4 to 5% already on the year as of January 2020, 2023. Whether this is a sign that things are looking up for biotech is still too early to tell, but I felt it's worth discussing why it's been hard times in biotech in 2021 and 2022. Eden and I also discuss what he's looking for amongst the biotech rubble, in particular, why it's so important to pay attention to how phase 2B clinical trials are constructed. We close out with his biotech predictions for 2023. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet MicroCap podcast and please enjoy my conversation with Eden Raheem. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Alpha Sets. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Eden, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Pretty good, Robert. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, I I wanted to have you on here today because, you know, we we here at Planet Microcap, we're sector agnostic. We cover everything from healthcare, uh, tech, mining, you know, all all of it. And, you know, now we're here at the beginning of 2023. And I wanted to kind of do a recap on, you know, how 2022 was for healthcare life sciences, looking ahead, looking at a little bit of data and just kind of a couple of other things that I've noticed that I mean I find them interesting but you know we'll talk it through here. So um and, and also shout out to uh Deborah Honig from Adelaide uh for introducing us so thank you Deb and uh yeah here we go. Uh, uh Raheem what the last 2 years in biotech it's kind of it's been a bloodbath. Uh, what yeah. what else are we going to say, right? Uh it, it, according to the S&P Biotechnology Select Industry Index, the sector's been down about what 45 50%. You know, what for you, in your opinion why has this been the case and how come 2022 didn't fare much better than 2021 for the biotech industry?
1: Sure, great question. So what the the sector peaked along with a lot of long duration assets like uh, you know, EVs and stuff like that, um you know the, the sectors that benefited the most from ZERP, from zero interest rate policy, very low interest rates, and so on, um, they, they, that benefited the most from it, they all peaked in February of 2021. And as, as markets often do, they anticipate a changing regime well in advance. So there was a bit of a speculative blow-off um, in biotech, along with several other small-cap-focused sectors, when the two-year yield was down at 10 basis points. From that point on, it started to rise. So these long-duration assets, their valuations are inversely related to changes in interest rates, especially real interest rates. And so that rose steadily through 2021. The S&P Biotech Index fell 20%. Then came 2022, when the Fed got very aggressive and virtually every asset class fell the TLT fell at a stunning you know 30%. It's amazing to see a bond ETF uh, fall like that. Uh the S&P Biotech Index fell another 26%. So peak to trough from the uh the Feb 7 2021 high to the um to the June 2022 low the S&P Biotech Index was down about 65% and that's the fourth worst a biotech bear market in history. Um, and what's different about this one is that this one didn't follow a gigantic bull market. Biotech has been meandering in a range now for seven years since the peak in 2015. Um, the other similar bear markets all followed gigantic bull markets. So the worst bear market was the um, it was a 73%er uh, in 92 to 94 was three years, and that followed a four-year, uh, 800% bull market. The 70% bear market in uh, 2001, 2002 followed a 1,000% bull market from 1994 to 2000. This one, there was no such thing. So what it's effectively done is taking taken biotech stocks down to valuations um, I have not seen in my career. So it's a it's a it's a variety of things. We have the interest rates. We have the risk off positioning as the market became concerned. Um, yield curve increasingly inverting, which in a sense, believe it or not, is actually not a negative for biotech. I'll get into that later on. Um, and the inability of companies to raise capital. So what happens is the market in twenty twenty two started to look forward and say, well, let's separate um, the cash flow now, giant. Uh, biopharma companies, which we know will continue to generate revenue growth through recessions and so on, versus those that will burn through their capital, incinerate before they even approach commercialization, and will be, you know, like like birds, chicks with their mouth open, waiting for the parents to drop food into it. That's what small small cap biotech was like. They'd this constant need for funding for R and D. And so the market just pushed ahead and said, we're going to just take you down 90% because you're going to dilute shareholders into oblivion. And so that's how you get that dramatic valuation. And I've quantified exactly what the magnitude is by test odds and so on. And I think I sent it to you.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's so, it's so interesting when you take in macro market conditions and you start thinking and, and then you apply that to how you should think and evaluate you know the this we're micro cap pod here, so you know, companies three in the biotech space 300 million market capital, less because nothing really changes in the sense that you know, these are companies that are they're always going to be having to raise capital for the most part, right? right. I mean, not everyone, you know, some yep. either you know get yep. taken out or they, they do a good phase three or phase two, whatever. But for the most part, they're always going to be diluting, you know? So it's always interesting when, you know, you see that, you know, the macro, and then you start thinking like, wait a second, uh, you know, so it's just fascinating when the, these times happen. Uh, and I'm, you've seen it a couple of times now. And, and that's a function of sentiment.
1: So um, when things were ebullient back in early 2021, 20, companies could raise capital at will. You know, small, small, even small gap companies, and I hey, like to, hey, real quick, and, let, and let's
0: qualify yeah. that too, because in terms of raising capital, like there's that can mean multiple different things. So at that time, you know, at when when they were raising capital, it wasn't as value destructive, would you argue, or because you know share prices were, you know much higher than they were today they are raising them at better at better prices right so compared to what they are right now because it's not that they can't raise capital right now it's just way more difficult and you're getting it at at, at uh let's just say in, in in structures that are not the most shareholder friendly
1: and that that's like, exactly right so it, uh, when the market's buoyant they're they're opportunistic and, and 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 it's incumbent upon it to do it because you know they they are spending shareholders r&d shareholder funding to to fund r&d to generate ultimately hopefully long term wealth and um but now many man, man, many managements are facing a really difficult choice because the market's already anticipated that they're going to need funding um so they have you know a couple of options either put themselves up for sale or Face, face the music, go and dilute. They have to add lots of sweeteners, like, you know, add the money warrants, five-year warrants, all these sort of things. So it's definitely a buyer's market. And so there, and 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 there are companies. But the other thing too is that you really have to separate now because you can get really good uh, mid to late stage companies at valuations the same as early stage or sometimes pre-clinical companies. So, you know, there are gems buried in this entire rubble that are worth pursuing and, and worth investing in that will generate huge returns. And, you know, uh, we've seen it. Well, what I've actually done is I've actually pivoted. You know, so we had some winners, big winners like CPRX and so on, which is being taken to the woodshed today. But, you know, we were in at 255, We sold our entire position at 20 bucks because we figured, you know, it was actually rich. And now they need to do acquisitions to continue earnings growth and so on. So we said, you know, that's not why we're in. So we sold our entire position and we pivoted and used all the proceeds to buy um, promising um, late phase companies trading well below net cash, huge discount to net cash, have catalysts coming up. Um, and so we figured that the risk reward is way better. They've already been through Armageddon. <laughs> you know, what risk are you taking buying a company at selling at one third to one half net cash, with big catalysts up ahead, right? And so we are we are doing that this quarter. You know, it's not it's not necessarily that it's bullish; It's that the markets laid that opportunity on the platter for us? You know, and.
0: Yeah, no, you you and and my, I would say to follow up on that. You know, you mentioned how there are you know hidden gems that you're finding amongst the rubble, and you mentioned a couple of your criteria here trading it. I think you said third and net cash, and then uh, um, you know, big catalyst coming up. You know, tell us a little bit more about you know what you're now looking for amongst the this two year ash heap uh, yeah. <laughs> of a biotech industry that's been. <laughs> well, you know, uh, so I, I want companies
1: with you know, significantly de-risked pipelines and technology. So some of these companies are in early commercialization um, and the market is pessimistic as to whether they can achieve profitability. And that may be the case, but there's steps that they can take and they also have the cushion. So one of the other things I do um, when when I screen, so I screened over 1300 healthcare companies based on net cash. So cash and cash equivalents minus debt Um, I looked at things, um, debt maturing within one year. Um, I I divided the net cash by the EBITDA to see how many years of burn were available to them. So, you know, if you've got multiple years of cushion, you are not compelled to come to the market in this valuation. Some of the other things I looked at was a relatively thin float. You know, so they have a float of around 10 million or less. So, you know, versus companies that have 100 million, and so, um, uh, and you whittle down this universe down and down and down into, you know, about 10 companies that we think the risk reward is set up really well. And, and and you know, again, all the CPRX proceeds and a few other companies that had, you know, had defensive properties and, you know, CPRX was hitting an all time high, you know, up to a week ago. And so we, we bowed out and said, we're going to get a pretty good trade, we think, and Q1 and Q2 of 2023 that we have not seen in two years, and so you know those are the things. Some of the things I looked at, and it was a lot of work because you're going through companies, you're whittling down, um, you're you're going on, and, and you're listening to conference calls, you're running through all their decks, and and you start with a couple hundred companies, and you whittle it down to 100, then 50, then 25. And, you know, finally you get to about 10 and then up to 10, you decide which five or six you're going to buy, right? Take a one, one and a half percent weight in each of them. Uh, but, you know, you're for these positions you're playing because you think they can be up two or 300 percent if, if the market just gets less pessimistic about them, you know, which we think is possible. So that's the approach for this
0: component. Absolutely. So it's interesting that you brought up, you know, at this time that you're mostly looking at the, you know. Early commercialization stage type companies, you know, so are you just completely ignoring right now some of the companies that may have, uh, you know, late stage phase two, even now in a phase three? Are you kind of avoiding those at the, at the moment?
1: Not the phase threes, um, okay. but, pre, but pre-phase two readout, pre-phase two readout. Um, I'm always skeptical of those, except for um, companies in the CNS, central nervous system space, neurology companies. The market values those companies differently um, based on phase one data than it would oncology or anti-infective companies or, you know, some or antibody companies. They, They get valued very differently. It's way more competitive in those spaces than it is in CNS. FDA conditions for advancing trials and approvals are very different for CNS versus other areas. So they get valued differently. So that's the only place I make an exception to the rule. Otherwise, um, virtually every investment um, I pursue in the clinical development stage are phase three, which is the wheelhouse for me. And that that is, it's based on um, the fact that 70% of companies fail in phase 2B. So pre-Phase 2B, managements can make all these grandiose claims about how their, you know, you know, open-label Phase 2 data is better than that billion-dollar commercialized drugs you see it all the time and it's annoying, right? Stop comparing Apple's oranges, but they they make this claim because they want to encourage retail investors to buy their stock and and subsequently do financings. And, you know, to a degree, I understand it, but it's annoying. And um, so I pay no attention to that. and and focus instead on um, what that phase two data is, how that phase two trial was designed. I speak to key opinion leaders to say, if this drug um, were approved based on the data that you've seen, um, would it matter to how you treated patients? You know, Would it be first line, second line, third line, things like that? And if it doesn't really move the needle for them, I'm not interested. If they think it could be a game changer and there is a big role for it, that's when I'm interested. And I. that's when I tend to invest in these companies and hold them through phase three into commercialization. Because we, you know, now you're looking, you're, you're changing the failure rate from 70% to under 40%. And then you can further handicap that, the odds by different variables. You know, the design of the phase, how well, how effective was the phase two design, how broad it was, how much information you gathered and how much you can power the phase three for that. How much of an unmet need it is? How much of a you know poor this? St- how poor the standard of care is? You know versus what this drug has to address, um, and all these things factor in as to where I am going to invest, and how much of uh, uh, what weight I'm gonna um, I'm gonna take in, in um- that investment.
0: I'm so glad you brought up this point because I, you know, when we were talking offline, I, there was one company that I just was following that just had, you know, they had a, a failed phase three or for lack of a better term, a shitty uh, fail, phase three results. Part of my French, but it was, it was that. And we're in this industry, that's the language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can, I can already hear the PhDs being like, yeah, these were shitty results. Um, yeah. But, but, um, and so when when I saw that news I realized that on the pod we hadn't really talked about why it's important to really understand you know once a company is in phase phase 2 phase 2a two phase 2b you know why it's really important to analyze how that that clinical trial structured basically what you just said because at the end of the day that you know it sounds like it doesn't mean much you know, because once you get to phase three, that's really when, you know, that's when the meat and potatoes really uh, come home to roost. You know, these the management teams can make all these claims. because that's something that folks should really understand it when a company's in that phase two time period. That's not to say to just completely distrust anything management says that currently has a fa- phase two ongoing trial, but you really need to pay attention.
1: Yeah, the, the phase two design is the phase two B design. Is way more important than people put credence to. And and you want to do the heavy lifting in a phase two B because you want to power the phase three based on all the breadth of information that you've gathered in the phase two. And time and time again, we see microcap and small cap biotech companies actually try to get through, just get through enough on a phase two B and then hope for the best that they'll partner for phase three. And what you end up with is all these mothballed. Um, phase 2B trials where they didn't really answer a lot. The N was small. Um, They didn't measure a lot of secondary endpoints. The the patient population, there were doubts as to um, how appropriate it was, what the screening criteria was to get patients in, how reproducible it is. And so when these questions don't get answered, I see time and time again, the small cap companies, you know they're so happy they they manage to squeeze through a uh, through a phase two B, and then they 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 work on a large phase three to try and answer these unanswered questions. That is a huge risk factor. I think you know a lot of the you know the failed phase threes result from that versus a well designed phase three where a lot of those things are answered going in.
0: What are some indicators of that? Like let's say you're a lay investor that doesn't know how to analyze or look at a phase to be you know, structure, clinical trial, you know, are they answering all the endpoints? You know, because like the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, okay, we passed, we're out of phase two, B, positive outcome, yep. you know, whatever. Now we have to gear up for phase three. Is that when you start seeing most of these companies raise way more capital than they probably need? And that's usually an indicator? So what
1: happens is, is which is, I I like to invest in a post phase 2B financing, or I'll wait. So so what will typically happen? Suppose you report successful phase 2B data. It, it, it goes on my radar and it starts to become interesting to me, I'll look into it. So invariably, the market is pretty good at assessing how big an opportunity it could be for the company based on the data and how it stacks up with available treatments. So that's probably one of the first things uh, the market indicator as to um, the response of the phase 2B data. If the opportunity is huge and it's a novel mechanism of action, especially, um, and the phase 2B trial was designed where you can now go back at phase 2B trials of successful drugs in the indication and say, yeah, you know what, this was a well designed trial, it stacks up. The same questions that were answered in Merck's phase to B or Roche's phase to B, they actually address those here. W- w- the first red flag is when you start to see that in their phase to be, they haven't answered questions that were that were answered in a large pharma or biopharma company's phase to be. That's the first red flag. Um then the second thing you do is the company will spike and and they'll raise funding on it. And then the stock will just drift down. It'll drift down and down and down. And then at that point, what you want to see is the peer-reviewed data. So they have to publish. And so now it's open to scrutiny. You know, initially, sometimes you'll often see that report top-line data and the, and the, the more granular data will be reported at a conference. Maybe it gets in as a late breaker or something like that. And then you get to really peek at the data in greater detail. You want to see that stand up to scrutiny. And so the best entry points, I, for me, historically, is at that point. It's spiked up. It's done this big financing. It weighs on the stock. It drifts back down. So now you can buy. If if it stands up to the scrutiny and peer review, think about this. You've got a bunch of PhDs that are fighting over each other to as to what the merit is of this data. They're way better at it than I am, than I will ever be. So I'm reading, it's a combination of reading the tea leaves between what the market is doing and what these experts, uh, what their perception is of what that data is. So now you can come in without having to take the risk of phase 2B data, right? So you remember the failure rate is 70% and some indications even more. So now you can buy in after it's spiked up, maybe 100, 150%, and now it's retraced half of that. You can now buy it you know, three, four, five months down the line, you know, at 50% of what it was, 50% higher from what it was pre-phase two, but you've got all this information. Now, you know, legitimately, they have a drug that potentially works, a competitive drug. Um, The leading key opinion leaders in that indication think it's interesting or it's good, or it could make a difference. So you've got all this important information now. So I don't mind paying more, Without having to face the ambush of an eighty percent drop in phase two B on mm-hmm. a uh, field trial, right? right? So this is this is how I come at it, and so for me, um, it's a much better risk reward setup for the long term mm-hmm. to position it at that point because now I've got two or three years ahead. You know, um, they can potentially partner it uh, to allay some of the development costs and so on, and 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 and,
0: and that's where my my best
1: positions turn out to be. In a in a scenario
0: like that. Absolutely. That that is really great insights. And so I mean, real quick, what resources do you use to find um maybe to filter out companies that have, you know, peer reviewed data already out there? Um something like that.
1: Um, you know, I, I use things like biopub and so on. I also use uh, Bloomberg's catalyst calendar and plus a host of screens. Um, I use Clintrials.org. Um, that's probably the best source for looking at trials and peer review trials and so on. Um, uh, but on Bloomberg, I screen based on indication. So if there's an indication that's targeted, I I can screen all the companies that are in similar stages of development, uh, in that indication, that program. And so that's another primary source. And then I'll go through and look at what they have that way.
0: Very good. All right. So that that concludes our talk. I really wanted to talk to you about that today because, you know, yeah. and I'm glad you brought that up talking about. So if everyone, if there's one thing they took away, you know, whether it's a current market sentiment, anything like that, no matter at what point we are in the macroeconomic, how things are relating to one another, Definitely listen to what Eden said, having to do with phase one, phase well, not even phase one, but at least phase two, <laughs> phase three trials and understanding the key different uh differences there and what you can look for. So now wanted to quickly transition because um, you know, going back to you know, thinking about where we're at right now, you know, yep. maybe we're coming out of this, you know, two-year bear market, whatnot. You know, um, were you at JP Morgan this year? Did you go to the, the healthcare? No, conference?
1: I so I, I used to go in the nineties and early two thousands yeah. and I stopped going into the zoo. Um, yes. And it, it just—it's chaos, and everything's overpriced. So I, I prefer to, to go to smaller firms, um, where you—it's—it's it's not crazy like this. I can meet the companies I want. You know, there there are smaller boutique firms in New York and Boston and so on that I like to go to. I was most recently at the Wainwright Conference, H. Wainwright Conference in New York in September. I got to meet a lot of great, interesting companies. You know, some companies I position in that are now up hundred plus percent, and it was, and you can see them really bounce back. And you, 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 you get to meet these companies in J.P. Morgan. It's just crazy. It's a zoo. It's like. I'm just not interested in that.
0: Fair enough. No, I was only yeah. I, I I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, no, I know. Preface that only because I figured you know everybody. Yeah. Yeah, everybody
1: in healthcare usually goes there. Um, so, but- so it it used to be called the eight, the um uh what was it the Hamburg and Quist. That's how it actually started. I was a boutique in San Francisco, and 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 they were early in the early in the biotech development cycle, and they put it together, and then J P Morgan um, bought them in two thousand, and that's how J P Morgan actually got into biotech
0: very good well i want to so then i was going to preface that for my my question about sentiment you know now going yes. forward um but i do have some other stats that we can use for the sentiment question so here we go you know um sure. we just rebalanced our index that we follow here it's a generalist microcap plan, a microcap index healthcare companies the top 50 uh We have the top 50 by performance. Um, The average performance of those companies was 150 point, uh, about 150.5 percent in Q4 2022. And then, you know, in 2023, according to S&P Biotechnology Biotechnology Select uh, Industry Index, the sector is up about four to five percent already on the year. That's as of on Friday, January 20th. So is there a change in sentiment that you're seeing right now? Uh, Love to hear your thoughts there.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so there are several ways that I measure sentiment. Some of these are proprietary indicators and we'll talk about them and what the readings were and sort of the multi-year extremes that they've hit. So you're spot on. You know, for people in micro-cap and small-cap biotech, December was horrible. So a lot of these companies have been basing you know, for two or three months and then on zero fundamental news, they just went off a cliff. And, you know, a lot of these lost a third to a half their value on nothing, no news. And it was just tax selling, portfolio window dressing, that sort of thing. And they went off a cliff. And ordinarily, when you see that sort of tax selling, it's done by the middle to the third week of December. This time, it went literally to T minus two. It went right to December 28th, two days before the end of the year. And, uh, and it was just a bloodbath. That's one measure of sentiment. So that's why I think you're seeing some of these small cap, micro cap biotechs really bounce back in Q1. Because, you know, some people are coming in and they're repositioning. There's a trade to be had. The valuation valuations are extreme. But, you know, uh, you know there's so many other indications. Percentage of companies that traded below cash, biotech companies, you know, upwards of 35%. That's insane. I've you know, I've been through many, many biotech cycles. During the GFC, that reading was 25%. You know, we're you know, we're we're a third higher on that reading, and it's not the GFC. It's just incredible. You know, back at the 2002 low in in biotech after a 70% bear market, that reading was, you know, again, somewhere in the low to mid-20s. So it's insane the kind of valuations you've seen. You know, other things that I look at you know, uh, uh, in the sector, the enterprise value to revenue ratio back down to where it was at the GFC lows. Um, the percentage of NASDAQ biotech companies trading below the 200-day moving average back in the meltdown in the middle of the year uh, in June when biotech really put in its low, that reading stayed below 10% for a month. So between mid-May and mid-June, that reading stayed below 10%. You, there was only other one other time in history that that happened. Um, another thing, I I, um, I just I sent you a tweet that I sent out. I did an analysis on thirteen hundred um, biotech and healthcare companies, and f- almost four percent are down a hundred percent from their twenty twenty one high. About a third are down ninety percent. So, all well told thirty eight percent. Are down ninety percent or more. Another nineteen to twenty percent are down eighty to ninety percent. It's incredible. So you're looking at almost sixty percent of the biotech universe, um, biotech tech bio companies, and so on, down more than eighty percent. And a third of the universe, like like these are like great depression levels that you're looking at right now. So they they, they've been through Armageddon, and, and you know it's reminiscent of where oil and gas companies were in April of 2020. Everything got taken to the woodshed. You know, you remember when oil went went minus 37, things like that. Sentiment was bleak. People assumed these companies would never be able to fund themselves out of debt and so on. But what's the best performing sector of the last two years? Energy. Right? And, and so you never know at the apex of negative sentiment what the future could be, regardless of what the market does. You know, and we're in a period where we're seeing you know, fangs get unwound and the crowded trades get unwound. So what we saw at the beginning of the year, we saw a lot of the large cap biopharma companies get hit. And some of the small micro cap companies go bid. And so I think we're, we're seeing that, that trade where they're willing to take a shot at it in Q1 and possibly Q2 uh, and position away from that defensive crowdedness that we saw in the back half of
0: 2022. Very good. All right. Well, to close us out here today, you know, if you had to make one prediction regarding the biotech industry for 2023, what would that be?
1: Well, regardless of what the sentiment is, we are in an extraordinary period. I've I've been through four or five cycles in biotech, you know, from the eighties, from the inception of the industry, uh, you know, during my university years and high school years and so on to now. And, the innovation and the tools that are there to enable an acceleration innovation is beyond anything we've seen in our lifetime. So I think where technology was maybe 30 years ago and all the wonders that we've seen emerge from that, I think we're entering an era where we're going to see the same thing. So we've saw, we saw the FDA approve, uh, the uh, for Biogen. I think, um, it ushers in a period where we could see tremendous development in, in in things like Alzheimer's disease, where the pessimism is very, very steep. And this goes back, there are parallels uh, between my early in my career in the 1990s w- with HIV. So HIV was a death sentence, and it was just more rapid than it is with Alzheimer's. But so FDA pivoted. FDA said, well, we can't have the standard trial. So you're allowed to use surrogate biomarkers, things like changes in CD cell four counts and white blood cell counts, and so on. You couldn't wait to have a lengthy, extensive trial in the big population because it was just it was it's inhumane. So they they pivoted and relied on things like um, like surrogate biomarkers, which is what the FDA has done in CNS indications like Alzheimer's. Well, how is A beta and 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 p tau changed over time? Things like that. And of course, there's enormous amount of criticism, but I remember the same thing with with what they did with HIV. But there was enormous benefit to the community as a result of what FDA did in pivoting and enormous wealth created for investors. I remember buying Biochem Pharma, who had developed Epivir, a 3TC, that became a billion dollar drug, Triangle uh, Pharmaceutical that got acquired by Gilead, who had a once a day pill, Aguron Pharmaceutical and Gilead, you know, during that devastating bear market in 2001, 2002, when Biotech was down 70%, Gilead was up 150%. So long story short, Biotech has that ability to create enormous returns when things normalize a bit, you know, like we don't need, we don't need a, a saturable market. We just don't need this this devastating, persistent liquidation that we've been through the past two years. If things if it gets choppy and so on, it becomes a stock picker's dream because you will find stocks that will generate enormous wealth for investors and benefit to society all at once. It, it is a virtuous investment, and I think in 2023, it's going to be a stock picker's market. You will find great companies, and they will be up two, three, four, five hundred percent. That's what I think.
0: With that, where can our audience go and find more information on you, Next Edge Capital? Uh, follow you on social media the whole bit. Sure. I think I think the
1: easiest thing is just um, I'm on Twitter, and um, I, I tend to avoid tweeting on individual stocks unless it becomes history to me. Uh, like you know, a couple of companies this year has been acquired, um, Albrio and Concert that I own. I only tweet about them after they were acquired. And, uh, you know, similarly, um, but I tend, you know, a lot of the indicators that we talked about today, I'll put that out. And I, it's it's really just good faith just to help you put your finger up and see which way the wind is blowing in the sector. And, um, you know, enormous amounts of work and resources going to creating and maintaining these indicators and so on. and But I put it out there, and and that's probably the easiest thing. So it's at Eat and
0: Read. Very good. Well, Eden, thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update.
1: Robert, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat about uh, the best sector in the world.
0: Yeah, very good. Thank you. Cheers. Sure.
1: podcast.